Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, filmmaker and actor Riku Browning, best known as the creature from the Black Lagoon. We shot in the wintertime at Wakulla Springs, and uh, water temperature was about 51. The air temperature at that time was 49, so it got pretty chilly. We'll discuss the Atlantic Coastline Railway. The railroad itself actually covered most of the southeastern U.S. with over a thousand miles of track uh, in Florida alone. And talk about the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. music is playing during a scene from the 1954 film Creature from the Black Lagoon that is both sensual and scary. Scientist Kay Lawrence, played by Julie Adams, is unaware that the Gilman creature is swimming just below her. The actor in the Gilman costume is Riku Browning. Browning got his start in the early 1950s entertaining tourists at Wikiwachi. We put on an underwater night show at Wikiwachi and it was very successful. However, there was only one motel at Wikiwachi at that time, and you had to travel 18 miles into Brooksville to get to the next motel. So I got the bright idea, why not go to Silver Springs, because they got motels everywhere, and tourists, and do an underwater show there at night. So I came up and talked to Bill Ray, who was the son of Ray Davidson and Ray, and his brother, uh, Buck Ray, who was the general manager, and I talked to them about doing a night show at Silver Springs and building an underwater theater, and they turned me down. But just as I was leaving, Bill said, Bill Ray, he said, Rico, look, why don't you let me give you a job here, and over a period of time, we'll talk him into doing it. I said, well, fine. So he made me the assistant director of public relations at Silver Springs and I was in that job for about five years. Riku Browning met director Jack Arnold and was hired to portray the Gill Man in all of the underwater scenes for Creature from the Black Lagoon. He wore a distinctive, cumbersome costume. I put it this way, when you're a kid and you play football, you put on a uniform, shoulder pads and everything, and it's pretty clumsy. But when you get in a game, you forget you even have it on. So it's about the same with the suit. It was a little awkward, but once I got into the water and started using it, I forgot I have it on. 
It was sponge rubber covered with latex, and I had to wear lead weights, uh, chest plate, thigh pads of lead, and lead around my ankles so I'd sink because it was made of rubber. And uh, we shot in the wintertime uh, at Wakulla Springs, and uh, water temperature was about 51. The air temperature at that time was 49. So it got pretty chilly, yeah, cold. Browning says that the sensual, scary scene where the gill man swims beneath scientist Kay Lawrence was challenging to shoot. We had a director who, uh, nice man, but he couldn't swim. So he was in an inner tube on the surface looking down at what we were doing. So uh, the cameraman, Scotty Welburn, kind of took over directing underwater. And so he said, well, let's swim downriver with Ginger and uh, get the scene of following her. And so I swam with her, and uh, vision was the poorest thing in the suit. The eye sat about an inch away from my eye, and I didn't use a face mask or a goggle because if they filled with water, I couldn't get rid of the water. So I went with a naked eye. So it was a blurred vision looking through a keyhole. So the only way I could see her was when I swam upside down. So I had to swim upside down underneath her in order to follow her down the river. Most of the underwater filming for Creature from the Black Lagoon was done at Wakala Springs, but some was done at Silver Springs. At Silver Springs, down river, about a quarter of a mile, there's a little spring on the left with a house. And we used that spring there to shoot the scenes of the creature trying to move all the logs and everything. And that was shot here at Silver Springs. The rest of it was shot at Wakulla Springs. Browning would reprise his underwater role for the two Creature from the Black Lagoon sequels, the only actor to portray the Gill Man in all three films. After the Creature series of films, Browning became the stuntman and underwater director for the TV show Sea Hunt, working with producer Ivan Tors. He's quite a guy, very sharp, and uh, we did a third year of Sea Hunt at Silver Springs and shot all the episodes for that year. And uh, I was hired to just be the bad guy. And I would fight Courtney Brown, who was the double for Lloyd Bridges, in just about every scene. And I had to wear different bathing suits, different hair or makeup, and uh, either go as a blonde or a brunette or wear a hood. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, we, we then moved to, to Nassau and shot the remaining couple of years of Sea Hunt over there. After the success of Sea Hunt, Browning and co-writer Jack Cowden took the story of a very intelligent dolphin named Flipper to producer Ivan Tours. We wrote it as a book, and uh, we went to Lake Weir, Bruce Mozart's house, and we spent the whole week and weekend writing this little book. And so we wrote it, and uh, I went to New York with my last 200 bucks and tried to promote it as a, a, a book. And I went to three publishing houses, and one seemed very interested. And I never heard back from them. I left them with a book and some pictures and drawings and everything. And so I got the bright idea that if I could say a producer in Hollywood is considering it as a movie, maybe they'll publish the book. So I called Ivan, and I said, Ivan, would you do me a favor? I said, I'd like to, to get my book published about a boy and a dolphin. And uh, would you say you're considering it as a movie? He said, yeah, well, okay. 
And he said, but send me a copy. So I did, I mailed him a copy. And I called the book company and I said, hey, uh, the producer in Hollywood wants to make this into a movie. Can we get the book going? And they talked and hemmed and hawed and I never heard back from them. But I did hear from Ivan. Ivan said, I didn't read your book. He said, but my wife did and she loved it. So she made me read it. I love it. He said, let's make a movie. So he got the money from MGM and we made the first feature and then four years of television. They called him Flipper, Flipper, faster than lightning. No one you see is smarter than he. And we know Flipper lives in a world full of wonder, flying there under, under the sea. Riku Browning discovered a special dolphin named Mitzi to play Flipper on screen. We were looking for a dolphin to use as Flipper, and uh, we went to the different aquariums, and no one in any aquarium had anybody swimming with dolphins. They just trained them to do tricks from the surface. And they listened to me to asking them about using an animal, and they all kind of hemmed and hawed and said no and whatever. Well, we went down into Florida Keys, and we met a guy named Milton Santini. And his job was he captured dolphins for aquariums. And he had a little pond next to the ocean where he kept a dolphin so that when he caught wild dolphins, he'd put them in there. And his tame dolphin, he would feed her with fish and the other dolphins would see that and they would begin to eat sooner. So we went over to look at Mitzi and I waited down in the water next to a little dock about waist deep. And all of a sudden, this animal swam around and put her nose right up under my arm. And Ivan was on the dock, and I looked at Ivan, and I said, we got Flipper. So I spent the next three, four months training Mitzi to do the things that we needed for the show. Well, I wasn't an animal trainer, and I had to learn with the dolphin. And the, one of the hardest things was to get the dolphin to ride the boy. And I couldn't figure out exactly how to do it but I would throw a ball or whatever and she would retrieve it and bring it back. And I, my son was there with me, uh, to help him train her. And he was a little boy and he had on cut off jeans. And I got the bright idea, if she retrieves a ball, why not retrieve a boy? So I said, Ricky, do me a favor. I said, when I throw the ball, you jump in the water and we'll see what Mitzi does. So I did, and he jumped in the water, and she tried to bring him to me, and she didn't know how to do it. So she'd grab the little loops in, the, in his cut-off jeans and try to pull him. Well, he accidentally put his hand up in the uh, water and got caught onto her fin, and she rode him right to me. I said, hey, this is great. So I said, go way across the pond, and I'm going to throw the ball over your head. You jump in the water over there. And when she comes, hold on to her and see if she brings her to me. And it was quite a distance. And I threw the ball way over his head. He jumped in the water. She went over there and rode him right to me. Well, the cameraman for the movie was Lamar Boren. And he was living in a cottage next to mine where we were staying. And I yelled up at him. I said, Lamar, I said, come in here, get your camera and come down here. So he photographed Ricky riding the dolphin. And I called Ivan and I said, Ivan, we got it. And we spent the next three months 
working on all the different tricks that Flipper had to do in the movie. In 1969, Browning directed the underwater scenes for the film Hello Down There. In the movie, a scientist moves his family into an underwater habitat. The film was produced by Ivan Tours and reunited Browning with director Jack Arnold. Jack Arnold is a great guy, and I enjoyed working with him. On the stage, a large stage at Ivan Tours Studios, we had a big swimming pool. And we built this little dome over the swimming pool where the people lived underwater. By the way, it was, I think, Richard Dreyfuss's first film. And I just did a show, autograph show, about a month ago where he was there. And we talked a little bit. And he said, I'm glad you're still alive with all the shark stuff you had to do. But anyway, we, we had the dome built over the swimming pool. And we used the dolphins in there and the submarine. But then we exterior, we shot in the Bahamas. And we had a little dome built there. And we'd go up with the submarine. And they would dump garbage. And we'd get the shots of the sharks eating the garbage and everything. It was a lot of fun. Filmmaker and actor Riku Browning has worked in Florida's film and television industry since the 1950s. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away. Can't you hear the whistle blowing? Rise up so early in the morning. Can't you hear the captain shouting? Dine Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, railroads really opened Florida up for development in the late 1800s. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And I think most people would be familiar with the two Henrys, Henry Flagler and, and Henry Plant, who first developed major rail lines within Florida, uh, like you said, at the latter half of the 19th century. But it wasn't until 1900, about the turn of the century, that these railroads began to uh, merge together. And in 1900, the ACL, the Atlantic Coastline Railroad, came into existence. Um, and the railroad itself actually covered most of the southeastern U.S. with over a thousand miles of track uh, in Florida 
Florida alone. And they took over the plant line. Uh, so the, the railroad uh, came into Jacksonville, the northeastern part of the state, but traveled throughout the interior towards Tampa and as far south as Naples. So it covered a huge part of the interior of the state of Florida. Uh, of course, the Florida East Coast Railway continued on the uh, eastern coast of Florida down in Miami, eventually to the Keys. But the ACL was the largest uh, rail system in the southeast. And it stretched all the way up to Virginia and as far west as Birmingham, Alabama. So in theory, someone could board a train in the northeast and uh, be in Florida overnight. They developed one of the fastest passenger rail systems throughout the state, uh, but they also carried a lot of freight. Um, So a lot of the the famous uh, Florida agriculture, oranges, things like that, a lot of that material traveled on ACL lines, on ACL cars. And part of this infrastructure included um, a lot of employees, a lot of people who were living in Florida and throughout the southeast, but, but a lot of people in Florida uh, who were involved in the manufacture of, of locomotives and cars, but also the maintenance of lines, ticketing offices, uh, freight centers, places like that. So there are tens of thousands of people throughout Florida who were employed by the ACL. And you have here from the Library of Florida History Collection a monthly newsletter published by the Atlantic Coastline Railway. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at, uh, I've pulled a selection of the Atlantic Coastline News. Now, this was the official newsletter of the ACL, and it was printed monthly beginning around 1920 uh, up through at least the 1950s. We have a full run from about 1920 to 1951. And like I said, this was a monthly publication, but it was printed by and for ACL employees. And it uh, really kept people abreast of what was happening within the company uh, throughout the entire line. So there's news about what was happening in North Carolina. Carolina, South Carolina. But a lot of this material focuses on Florida because, again, the bulk of the lines were in Florida. And most of the passengers who were traveling on the ACL were coming to Florida. This was the destination that the Atlantic Coastline Railroad served. So if we look at some of these articles, I've pulled a few here from the 1920s. Now, this was really the heyday of railroad development in Florida. People were rushing to get to the state. There were folks developing, but also just winter visitors. And they came here on these railroads. So what we see in a lot of the newsletters, at least in the 1920s are a lot of articles focused on infrastructure development. So here we have an article from April 1927, and it talks about a new double-tracked bridge that was constructed just south of Jacksonville. And it shows a photo of the uh, crew who was working on the railroad. It also lists the names of the people who were involved. And if we open it up, we can see that there's all kinds of really great information about people who were retiring. Some of these folks had worked for subsidiary lines going back to the 1870s and 1880s, and, and now here, they're retiring in the 1920s. So they would allocate a little space for people who had worked for the company for a long time. If one of the railroad employees had a child, it was featured in the newsletter. And again, all of these names are are, are listed. So it's really a great source for folks doing genealogical research. Um, But it gives us really a great view into the inner workings of such a large organization, because we can uh, trace what happened every single month for a, a 40-year span, all the way through the Great Depression, through the Second World War. In fact, I'll take a look at, at an article here from uh, 1944. Now, at this point, the United States is, of course, right in the middle of the Second World War, and much of the ACL's operations were dedicated to the passenger service and the freight service, dedicated to the war effort. So we'll see a lot of photos of service members. And unfortunately, there are a lot of, of these service people that that never came back to Florida, folks that joined the military who were previously working for the railroad, joined the military and never came home. So there's a lot of these really difficult articles to read about uh, families who were grieving. But you really get that sense that the ACL considered all of its employees part of this larger family, and they wanted to include them uh, in this newsletter. And this was a great vehicle for doing that. 
Now, are railways still an important part of Florida's economic infrastructure? They absolutely are. Not as much as a, as a passenger line, uh, the automobile, the interstate system, and of course, airplanes have kind of supplanted the, the railroad as fastest means of transportation. But in terms of freight, the ACL can trace its history through the Great Depression after the Second World War. They were really one of the few railroads in the country that remained financially stable throughout that time period. They merged with the Seaboard Airline uh, in the early 1960s, and that operated into the 1980s when CSX took over. And you'll notice now uh, throughout Florida, a lot of CSX lines. A lot of those lines uh, date back to the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. So a lot of that infrastructure still exists today. So railroads are a major part of Florida's economy, really for the freight. That's the biggest component now. So not so much passengers, but uh, but freight, certainly. And this type of material, because it survived, like I said earlier, this is a great resource for railroad historians, Florida historians, but also for people tracing their family history, because they employed tens of thousands of people. And a lot of people can trace their ancestors who were featured in these newsletters at one point. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away. Can't you hear the whistle blowing? Rise up so early in the morning. Can't you hear the captain shouting? Dinah, blow your horn. Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow your horn? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow your horn? This is Florida Frontiers. The town of Rosewood no longer exists. Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this look at the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. The Rosewood Massacre is a week-long episode of violence that took place the first week of January 1923. Rosewood was located in Levy County, Florida, so this is about two hours north of the Tampa area. Why it took place is obviously a more difficult answer. That was Dr. Edward Gonzalez Tennant, visiting lecturer of anthropology at the University of Central Florida. He is also the author of the book, The Rosewood Massacre, an archaeology and history of intersectional violence. He recently sat down with me to discuss the Rosewood Massacre, an episode of racial violence that took place in 1923 in a small, prosperous African-American community in Florida. White mobs killed several black residents and burned down nearly every structure in town due to a false claim by a white woman that she was assaulted by an unidentified black man. Some of the survivors of the violence hid in swamps for days, while others fled to nearby towns. After the attack, the town of Rosewood was abandoned. Many of the residents who lived through the event never spoke about it again. Today, there is hardly any proof that the town of Rosewood ever existed. Dr. Gonzalez Tennant told me how he began piecing together the forgotten history of Rosewood with the help of digitized property records from Levy County. There were certainly people across Levy County who made my research much easier. Levy County did a great thing maybe a decade or two ago now. Um, they digitized all of their historic property deeds. So coming in to look at the documentary aspect of this research was really made much easier by the fact that Levy County had taken the step of digitizing their records. 
Dr. Gonzalez Tennant, whose background is in anthropology, archaeology, and history, used physical records like census records and property deeds, along with mapping technologies and digital tools, to virtually recreate the community of Rosewood. So my interest in digital storytelling and digital technologies in general really came about through my interaction with the descendant community and their allies. Digital technologies like the virtual reconstruction of Rosewood, that was done again at recommendation of some of the descendant community's allies and descendants who were very interested in finding ways of just getting the story out to the next generation, the young generation. They really wanted this story and this history to be known. So the, the digital story that I created served a dual purpose. It's on the website, but it was also initially created to be used for a series of bus tours. Primarily high school age children could watch this and get an idea of the types of research that were happening, but also hear from, at the time, the last two remaining survivors. Half of that digital story is two descendants talking about their experiences, not so much during the riot, but what happened to them, and by extension, the entire community in the decades between 1923 and the present. So digital storytelling allowed me to extend Rosewood beyond the event of its destruction and understand it as a, a long-term community, which was something else that I thought was really important. As Dr. Gonzalez Tennant explains, his multidisciplinary investigation of the Rosewood Massacre could not have taken place without the help of the local community and the descendants of former Rosewood residents. People across the county were, were more than eager to help. Uh, there were, of course, some people who didn't want to talk about this and even some people who were, who were fairly against it or denied it ever that the event 23 ever took place. But I would have to say generally, my experience in Levy County has been with people who are at least willing to have the conversation about this event, not only willing, but agreeable to understand the role this event played locally. Because of course today, large parts of Levy County have low or no African-American populations, whereas other parts have, have retained those historic black populations. So there is a divide through Levy County in that regard. And I think doing this sort of research and including the local communities is one way we can make sense of how that took place or how that came to be. Dr. Gonzalez Tennant's examination of Rosewood shows how digital tools and mapping technologies like Geographic Information Systems, or GIS, can help preserve history and reveal new insights about not only the past, but the present day. As I started to learn about the history, learned about the course of race relations in the 21st century, seeing certain mirrors, certain commonalities, uh, certain similarities between the early 20th and 21st centuries, commonalities like you know, restricting access to political power, restricting access to education, and how they were concentrating along lines of race and class. I saw Rosewood as a place that deserved to have a dedicated research project one that could uh, utilize new technologies in a way to provide a new understanding of what took place, but also, and I think in some ways this is what drew me to it the most, allowing me to comment on the history of race relations and racial violence in this country, and not as a way to, to sort of say, look at how bad this used to be. Thankfully, we've improved, and while certainly improvements have occurred and advancements been made, there are still elements that explained why or allowed Rosewood to be destroyed in 1923 that still haunt our society today in the 21st century. So connecting the past with the present in a socially transformative or at least socially meaningful way was probably my primary goal for doing the research. 
For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can interact with us on Facebook or visit us online anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.